Hello, and welcome to the Craft Brewed Music Podcast, music interviews for serious listeners. You may have heard of our curated music discovery app. The podcast lets us dig deeper and get to know the creators of that music, as well as others that will broaden your horizons. I'm Brian Horner, founder and curator of Craft Brewed Music, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host Aaron Stamen, a Craft Brewed Music artist. Our guest today wrote this. also wrote this. We've got Kip Winger with us today. We're going to talk more about what he is and who he is musically, but he's done a lot. Played bass in Alice Cooper's band, went on to become the front man for the multi-platinum rock band Winger, emerged as a classical composer with a Grammy-nominated composition and album called Conversations with Nijinsky, Uh, wrote a musical called Get Jack, produced a couple critically acclaimed Americana albums for other artists, uh, and the Nashville Symphony is going to premiere his Symphony Number no. One in March. Kip, to uh, amass a body of work like that, you must have been busy uh, forever. <laughs> yeah, busy, busy, busy. I just, uh, from a very early age, I just, I saw music in my in uh, in my consciousness, and just wanted to figure out how to manifest it all. Or very early on, I started hearing classical music. So um, the biggest misconception is that I that I started as a classical musician or went to music school and all that, but it, it was exactly the opposite. So when you uh, achieved what I would have felt is like the pinnacle of, uh, of my youthful aspirations to be on stage with Alice Cooper uh, for the Constrictor album in 1986, I mean, at that point, knowing what the arc of your career is now, could you ever have imagined that it was going to take the turn it did? Yes, absolutely. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I started in a band with my two brothers, and I was very young, like eight eight years old when I did my first gig. So they were older than I was, and we you know, did what most local bands do, play the junior high, the high schools, the, you know, colleges, clubs. And uh, then we tour, I grew up in Colorado. So we'd tour around Colorado, um, states around Colorado, like Texas and New Mexico, Nebraska. When I was about 19, we broke up and I was kind of trying to figure out how to move forward. I took a, well, I dropped out of high school when I was 15 to go on the road with my band. And then 
when we broke up, I got a GED and then I went to Denver University to take just a couple classes, one a music theory course and, you know, stuff like that. And I, I started studying ballet earlier than that. So I was kind of taking ballet classes and studying music theory and writing a lot of songs, not doing too many gigs at that point. Um, so at this point, you're this cool high school rocker guy and the ballet seems like, you know, not quite a fit. How did that get started? What was the the attraction there? Well, so the thing is, is I dropped out of high school. I was 15. So I was pretty much on my own, making my own decisions in terms of artistically what I wanted to do. So I never had any like weird peer pressure from the football team wondering why I was the ballet or anything like that. I was fully immersed in my artistic life. And ballet was an accident. I had a girlfriend who wanted to take ballet and told me none of her girlfriends would do it with her. And I told her I would do it. I'd try it. And then I got in it and, and took to it like a duck to water. She dropped out and I stayed in. And and, and then I started then I started hearing all this classical music and, and it was very moving. It was just, first of all, it's athletically in, probably the most challenging thing to do. And then artistically really pushing an envelope for me, you know, I was, must've been 16. And then by, by the time I was 18, I was in a, in the company doing some solos and stuff like that, dancing. And uh, so I would do that during the day. And at that point my band was still playing. So I'd do ballet during the day and, and do club play, you know, with my band at night playing Led Zeppelin and Van Halen and all that stuff. I was also doing a lot of music lessons, classical guitar and piano and stuff like that, trying to, you know, I was very, I was like a sponge. I was just really hungry to learn everything I could. And, and, and I was very moved by classical music. And I always knew that I wanted to write orchestral music, but I, I never actually believed that it was possible for me because I thought that was like a dream too far off in the distance, but so did you ever consider at that point going to music school and making that your, your path? No, because I'm a terrible student. I, I'm super autodidactic and I just can only learn by myself. I, I've studied intensely for many years with one-on-one -on -one composers like Richard Danielport, Michael Keurig, and a guy a fellow by the name of Richard Herman out in the University of New Mexico, but I've never wanted to be in a classroom. I mean, that's just not my thing. Mm. Was the classical canon that you, uh, um, you know, you got to know during uh, the ballet classes and being part of the, uh, the troupe, was that your first exposure or what did you uh, get exposed to that, to classical ballet uh, music, uh, music earlier in your uh, childhood with your, with your parents? No. Well, I had, I'd studied some piano, so I'd played, you know, typical things you would play on piano, you know, Bach pieces. I mean, I'm terrible, but I listened to a lot of music, but I, I couldn't, Let's let's put one thing straight on the record. I'm not a great instrumentalist. I'm overqualified for rock, but I, as far in the classical world, like I mean, I don't even, you know, there's no get me even in the door, you know. So, but I I played some piano pieces and stuff like that. But when I got into ballet, they were playing all this incredible music on the piano, or we would, you know, they'd be playing a a, a 
back then it was like a cassette tape or something to dance to. And, you know, I was in a couple ballets and I, you know, the music really was moving. And so I, it became like a hobby for me as an adjunct to my rock career, you know, and, uh, um, when I was 22, I moved to New York and I answered an ad in a, you know, the New York times in the back section, the, the classifies, you know, composition teacher. And I went to take some composition when I was in New York from this guy. And, uh, I learned a lot from him. His name was Edgar Grana. I, not so much learning how to compose. I, I did write a string quintet under him. I was about 24. But he taught me how to analyze music and, and kind of, I mean, I'm not a great analyst, but I'm just saying he, he pointed out a lot of things like studying Elgar, uh, you know, enigma variations for theme and variations and noticing how music can be manipulated in that way. And or he would have me take a Prince song and, and record it three different ways, you know. So it was like we he was imaginative enough to teach both sides. And and my, yeah, I, I, my education really exploded at that point because I was waiting tables and just basically recording songs, you know. So uh, trying to get a record deal back then, it was like, let's try to get a deal. And it was all majors. There was no Internet or anything like that. So the interest was uh, was always centered on on composition and the kind of performative aspects of of music. Were was that was that a parallel thing, a secondary thing for you at that point? I mean, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I wanted to be a rock star. You know, I mean, I set out in the in my early years to be a rock star. Um, so, do you see classical and rock as like two sides of the same coin, or? like what Aaron was saying, like two parallel tracks, two different things. Two sides of the same coin to me, because um, the way my soul operates, I hear them all in, in, in conjunction with each other. There's no, although nowadays I do, I do keep them very separate in terms of, I'm quite the purist when I write orchestral music. I don't want to be, a crossover classical guy, you know, I don't like the sound of that. And while it's kind of cool to meld all these different worlds together to create something new, I'm quite the traditionalist. I want to work only with real instruments in the traditional classical setting. Um, although on my symphony, I'm using a, I will use a synthesizer just to make a certain sound that I couldn't get out of an instrument. But other than, I mean, John Adams does that. So, um, but in terms of writing the music, I'll think of a rock song, for example, and I'll hear, it's like going down the road and, and coming to a fork in the road. Like I'll, I'll be driving down the road and I'll hear some kind of musical idea and I can see that I could go left and put it in the rock thing, or I could go right and I could put it in the classical world. You know, it's, uh, how do you decide what determines depending upon what, what I've got coming up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so I read somewhere that you, um, see motion in music or, or see music as motion. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I literally see the shape of the music, 
I don't hear it as easily as I see it. Um, and that's true of both or, or all kinds of music? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll, I can be like, okay, you know, okay, there's a rock riff, but I could also go, and so I do hear the melodies. I, I'm real strong on melody. I hear, I hear, but I don't have perfect pitch, and I'm not even. I have really good relative pitch, but I've given up on all of that. I. I, for years and years and years, I wanted to, you know, be able to identify intervals and chords and ear training and all this stuff. And in the end, I found that real art is not about any of that. It's really just about listening to what's what like each one of us has a has a connection to the universe, a special connection that that you know we have a little tunnel that uh, information comes down to each one of us in a very unique way and the way it comes down to me um, so I just listen to that I hear what's coming to me from the universe never ever does any of this stuff come from within me I always listen from the point of view of uh, what the universe is if the, what channel to the universe I'm connected to at any given time. Does it ever go silent? Never, ever. God, no. I wish it would sometimes. <laughs> it's like it's like a water faucet that you can't turn off. I mean, that's that's why I still keep going and thriving more than I ever have. I mean, I've, you know, I'm finishing 14 songs for a winger album right now and writing the second half of a violin concerto. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a panic that I won't be able to get it all done. So even though you compartmentalize and you're a purist in, in either thing, you're able to do two projects like that at the same time? I can. I only I think it's only because I've been doing it for 40 years, though. Like, I'm very, I'm very fast at rock. I know exactly what I want. Um, I, I have a bag of tricks, but I try not to overuse them. I try to keep pushing the envelope. Um, of course, I have a style and a, and a technique that I do. And so what I do ends up sounding like me because it's what I do, you know, same as any other artist. But um, I don't like to quote, live on my laurels and say, you know, my guitar players always want me to write happy rock songs like we did on the first album. I mean, it's just never going to happen. You know, I'm never going <laughs> to go backwards. Um, not that there isn't a happy song on my album, because there is, but I'm just saying like, I don't want to replicate anything that I've ever done to me. That that's like the equivalent of death. And so, uh, and by the way, I'm just, I'm, I'm sitting here blabbing on like all this is easy writing orchestral music for me, uh, composing a piece is absolutely torturous. It's, 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 it's months and well years. I mean, all the pieces that I've written, Nijinsky ghosts, the symphony, they all took, you know, a year plus to write them. And, and sometimes I'll work, you know, three or four weeks on, on six measures, you know. I'm curious how that, uh, that transition took place in your life. Cause, you, cause you've always, uh, been interested in, um, classical music and, uh, compositional forms, but at some point when, uh, Winger broke up in the '90s. You really dedicated yourself to the to the discipline, 
and went from being the, uh, the, the, the stage show and the showman to somebody who's very much, you know, the autodidact behind the scenes, uh, dedicating yourself to this in a very solitary way. And that, that seems like an abrupt, jarring transition. And I'm curious how it actually uh, practically came about. It's imagine like, imagine that, you know, you're in a spaceship to Mars and you know what your mission is. And finally you arrive on Mars and you get there and you step out of the, out of the, you know, spaceship that's been going, you know, a thousand miles an hour and you step out on Mars and there's no one around, but you know that that's your mission. And you say, okay, I'm here now. This is, this is what I'm doing now. This, I've been preparing my mind for this, knowing that this was my destiny, you know? So it was very, very natural for me to do that. And the winger hiatus was the thing that gave you the, the landing or the space to do that? Yeah, I mean, very ironically, I mean, I was publicly stoned to death by the business and, and other bands and, and cartoons and all that stuff, uh, which was damaging to my to my soul in many ways. But it also uh, it was a just kind of a bizarre way that the universe said, OK, this is there was no other way to get you here. You know, if you, if you put your third album out and you were selling out arenas, then you'd put your fourth album out and you'd be selling out arenas and you'd never get off that train. So what your job is to do this. And so we're going to get you there. However, it's going to, how we're going to have to break you to get you there, you know? So, um, it wasn't pleasant, but there was a certain, um, inner peace, about it as well and i knew that it was my destiny somehow it's weird i it's hard to describe that because um and i don't i'm not trying to make a martyr out of myself at all i'm just saying that that's literally how it went and how it felt i and and uh, by the way i mean i postponed it for a long time i knew that studying to write for orchestra was coming but i was afraid because i didn't actually think that getting an orchestra piece was ever even possible and and uh, and it really came. I mean, it sounds very morbid, but it came from the from the, the, the destruction of my career. And then when my first wife passed away in a car accident, mm-hmm. I was sitting in a in my house on a big mountain in Santa Fe, where the first house was two, you know like a mile away, and I lived on national forest, and you couldn't see anything. I was looking out in this vast, open New Mexico hills going this is the beginning you know so you know i made a phone call to university of New mexico i asked around to find who the best composition teacher theory composition teacher in at university of new mexico was and everybody pointed me to this guy richard herman so i went down i scheduled an appointment i went down to him and i went to my first appointment and he he, he didn't show up man he completely forgot about it um and and so that was really interesting because I I was like wow that's really interesting I, I'm here now but he didn't show up so that was really yeah. strange later of course you know he was like oh my god I'm sorry and we did it and he was a great teacher I mean best guy I could have gotten uh, information from at that stage because I was really at the beginning it was like 
I mean, I could read and write bass and treble clef and stuff, but it was yeah. all about counterpoint and 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 from from that day forward, he was very um, encouraging of me to drop the instrument, and that was a critical moment in my life. Actually, I'm having that realization on this interview right now. I've never actually said that to anybody. It was Richard that was like, listen, we're going to do these counterpoint exercises, and I don't want you to do work with the piano. I really just want you to try to hear what you're doing and maybe sing it. If you can look at the line, sing the line uh, and and go through, you know, one through five species counterpoint and don't work with an instrument. Get away from your instrument. And it was from that point on that I really you know, stop trying to be a good instrumentalist at all and listening to that uh, connection to the universe that I keep talking about. It's it's remarkable to me that uh, someone can go through, you know, such a, uh, a kind of a, a public rejection of, you know, the music you've been working on, you know, throughout the late 80s, early 90s, and then, you know, lose, you know, someone who's your partner and the closest person to you and, uh, turn this around and not only reinvent yourself, but like really put yourself in a novice position uh, for uh, for music theory and and composition at that point. That that's a it's a it's a remarkable crucible to to go through to to persevere and and become a new a new version of yourself. Yeah, it's a really vulnerable thing. Even coming out of music school, it's it's uh, a hard thing to do to play for other people who have come out of that, but to be who you were. And come into an arena where people are, you know, inclined perhaps not to take you seriously. Very much so. I mean, they, I, yeah, I definitely had to prove myself, and that's why I went to to study with the best people I could find because I wanted to be able to walk in and speak on everybody else's terms. I didn't want to. I didn't want to have anything of my past to influence anything about what anyone thought of my music. Um. And so. You know, I did the best I could at educating. I'm, I've, there's still so many gaps in my education that it's embarrassing. And I would really, I fantasized long and hard about really just going through the curriculum of getting like a doctorate degree in composition so I could really feel like, uh, you know, I know all the things that I'm missing and all that stuff. And But being nominated for a Grammy by the Grammy committee that actually is voting for that because I was on the Grammy committee the year after I got nominated. I mean, it, that was really a, you know, a difficult, they're really hard on the, on the music. So for, to be nominated for it, I felt like, well, you know, that's, that's a pretty good acknowledgement for what I've done. And I don't feel like I have to do that anymore. Although I still love uh, the idea of studying and I still study, but, um, the answer what to answer your comments before I went on this little ramble was the <laughs> was the fact that I just am I I hear the music and I and I'm very passionate about wanting to create it and it's it is who I am so it's like I always I often say to people like what advice do you have for you know musicians or whatever and I always say if you only do this if you can't not do it. I mean, that's the only reason, you know. The the only reason that you should do 
anything that you choose is if you just can't live without it, you know? And so that's, that's where all this came from. It's just really came from passion and, and, uh, you know, my need to manifest the stuff that that's going on in my brain Mm -hmm. and my soul, more particularly my soul, because in my brain, I could sit down and compose a lot of music rock as well, you know, coming from more of a formulaic point of view, but I don't do that. I've, I've really even thrown music theory out the window. I just, I, I make up my own scales. I make up my own chords. They don't, nobody could sit down and analyze my music very easily because, you know, I, although I'm big on form and you could say, okay, well, this is an A, B, C, A, B form, uh, you know, you can do that in my music because for me, form is key, but you can't, you know, analyze how I got there or, or the chords I'm using or any of that kind of thing. Hmm. This, this process uh, between your, your, the start of your in earnest autodidact uh, journey in classical music and the uh, recording of Ghosts, this was about a decade interval? in which you yeah. were honing this craft and felt yeah. you were finally ready at that point? Well, I can tell you exactly. I think it was longer than that, actually. I started studying with Richard Herman at UNM privately um, in 19, I want to say 98. And I worked with him for a few years. And then I moved to Nashville in 2002. And I studied with Michael Curick. Um on and off for a good, I mean, I, well, what happened was, is I was in, in, uh, in the audience when I heard a, a string trio and I was like, oh my God, who wrote that? I want to study with that person. And I thought it was just going to be by the score and study the score, but it turned out to be Michael Curick and he was in the audience. So I, I met him and, and then he suggested I sign up for the adult thing the you know adult learning class at Vanderbilt and so I took six month course in composition there and started writing ghosts which was only a one movement like a quintet with piano and uh and then I kept you know studying with Michael after that and it was really Michael who was like you already know all this stuff it's just all this formality things that are getting in your way you you already know music you know melody you know harmony and he really gave me the permission, so to speak, about to to translate what I knew in rock music into, uh, you know, organic orchestral music. And and uh, yeah, sure, there were things I could learn about, uh, you know, the classical theory and techniques and stuff like that. But he was really the one who said don't let your mind get in the way of this. You already got this. So just write, you know. So that was 2000, probably about 2004. And there was some years in between where I wasn't really studying with anybody, but I was still studying and trying to, you know, get it together. And and you were writing shorter form pieces at that point? Yeah, just, you know, exercises and stuff like that. And trying to put it in my rock music, taking what I learned. If you listen to the album Winger 4, it's really a composition exercise on my part. You know, it's really it's really when my brain was exploding with with the possibilities of throwing out key signatures and, you know, 
not paying attention to any of the traditions, uh, you know, especially in some of the weird harmonies and, and all that stuff. And I was applying it in rock music. popular with the fans like they wanted us they wanted you know uh, madeleine and so it was like it's become a favorite of people it grows on you over time but when the initial response was like eh. and so the album after that i thought okay i'm gonna abandon trying to uh you know inject all of my music idea my really more intense music ideas in winger and just let it be what it is, which is a rock band. So we came back with this album called Karma. And I just said to Reb, all right, you got You want to be Van Halen? Like, lay it on me. Let's just do some of that. <laughs> and of course, the crowd goes wild, you know, because that's they that was a very popular album. We, the, you know, rock fans just they want to rock, you know. So um, that was really that was really the uh, fork in the road where I split off and created two different paths for myself. After that, I moved on to Ghosts, which was with Michael Curick.
I think I finished that in 2006, maybe. So yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe 10 years, 10 years-ish before I published a piece. We're going to take a quick intermission for a word from our sponsor, the Craft Brood Music app, a curated music discovery app that streams music for serious listeners. Sometimes we hear that people want to hear more of the songs we play on the podcast. To hear more Craft Brood music, download the Craft Brood music app from the App Store or Google Play and get a free two-week trial. We'll help you discover music off the beaten path so that you become the person your friends turn to for recommendations, and we split our income with the artists. Craft Brood Music, the music discovery app for serious listeners. To hear samples and find out more about us, visit craftbroodmusic.com. Every good composition teacher I ever had has basically said, forget about learning theory, just write music. Because, you know, theorists and all that, they reverse engineer all the stuff that the great composers did. And, and mm-hmm. they can they can they can all sit on their on the bouncing on their heels going, yeah, they did uh, this and that and blah, blah, blah. But the truth is, is it was really just some guy sitting in a lonely room anguishing over a piece of art, uh, <laughs> not knowing where it was going to go and wondering if it was just a piece of shit, you know. <laughs> we, we thought it was a funny irony that, um, you know, in, in country and pop music, you're always being told to shrink it down to three minutes, you know, so it can be a hit. And here you are writing this long form thing and, and having to expand it by approximately the length of a, of a pop song in order for it to, to work for ballet. True. I, you know, when I, I'd known Christopher Wielden from New York City Ballet, I'd been introduced to him and he was up and coming choreographer. And I, I just sent him that piece and a couple other bits that I sent. He was like, oh my God, I love this. It's so short. Could you make it longer? You know, and I, I was, was that like, first. Yeah. We don't hear that that much. Yeah. Well, we were infamous for having the longest single, you know, with headed for a heartbreak with that big, long guitar solo. But um, you're you're right. In general, it was always like, you know, this song needs an edit, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, but. uh, You know, I think I think that's where the pop and rock stuff helps me in classical because I'm really big on melody and I want anybody who listens to my music to be able to remember it. biggest problems with modern classical music is it's based on so many compositional techniques that are very impressive and everything but 
but it's hard to find many pieces that make you feel something and that you'll that'll linger in your mind with with emotional meaning and content that you can apply to your own experience of being a living human being you know mm -hmm. this is what i find to be the biggest problem look searching for new music that's that's that for me personally is meaningful when you started writing uh what became ghost did you uh from the very start conceive of it as a ballet and something that was going to be set to to human motion i always wanted to write music for ballet because i was in ballet and it was like i know how to write you know it was always kind of yeah the answer is yes i mean i i kind of when i'm stuck i'll dance around the room even you know kind of like getting into it and just seeing how it feels in your body because i know how to do ballet so i know the moves like uh the answer is yes i mean and the thing is man is that a lot you'll hear on the radio like if you listen to sirius xm or something on the classical station they'll go well, here's a piece for ballet by blah 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 and the thing is is it's like they they say it like it's second class citizen music and they're like forgetting that right of spring was a ballet yeah trushka firebird uh you know a bunch of ravel afternoon of a fawn like all the tchaikovsky music i mean it was it's like i don't know why it has like a second class citizen feel when they announce it on the radio because it's it's uh yeah like most, it's, dance, it's it's dance music yeah i mean so many so many so many great composers composed for the theater mozart and every you know um so many people did that and it's uh and it and you know ironically conversations with Dijinsky has not been choreographed i thought that was interesting too uh that uh given the uh the, the basis for its composition and your kind of relationship with his diaries that that that's that's the one that hasn't uh been uh, been choreographed yeah it's it's i i wrote it for a choreographer and he he felt like he didn't it didn't resonate with him and he passed. So he actually asked me if, if he wanted to, if, if we wanted to work on it, like I could tear it apart and, and start over, you know, and I was like, no, man, I'll just write you another piece. And then, you know, thank God it got nominated for a, a composition Grammy, which was, you know, sort of vindicating, great, very vindicating. Yeah. Yeah. I really have enjoyed uh, listening to this, uh, the, those four movements. Um, it really, for me, uh, I mean, it, it's it, it's it's its own uh, composition and it's very unique. But for me, it evokes that early twentieth century uh, Russian music uh, very strongly, which is something, as Brian knows, is is near and dear uh, to me. I was a, uh, a Russian studies uh, guy back in the back in the day, 
And my first real exposure to, to Russian culture was uh, a 20th century Russian avant-garde art class. And the first unit was all about the ballet russe. And there you uh, go. The, the, now that's, the, that's the epicenter of, of everything I based my whole classical thing on is the ballet russe. And is that something you you uh, encountered through the the, the Colorado uh, ballet, or was that something that you came to later? It, I came to it later. I it, the more I got into it, the more I realized that uh, Diaghilev was um, really the guy that orchestrated all of the great art to come together in one place. You know and. Mm-hmm. It was really just so fascinating. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, when when Nijinsky, uh, I can't remember if it came out on an album, I got an email that said, hi, uh, my name's Kinga Nijinsky. I'm Nijinsky's granddaughter. And I would, uh, I, what's this about conversations with Nijinsky? And I was like, oh, my God, I just got an email from Nijinsky's granddaughter. Yeah. And so I emailed back and said, oh, my God, what a great honor. Here's the piece. You know, I hope you like it. Uh, And she emailed me back. Oh, my God, my grandfather would have loved this. This is awesome. You know, like and we became very good friends. And and strangely enough, she lived in Tucson and I got a performance of the fourth movement in Tucson. And so I called her up. I was like, man, I'd like to invite you to this performance of the fourth movement of Nijinsky. And she's like, oh, that's awesome. I'd like to bring my mom, you know, Tamara Nijinsky, who was Nijinsky's daughter. And so I'm sitting in the performance next to Nijinsky's daughter, Tamara, and her granddaughter, Kinga. And it was, how surreal is that? I mean, yeah, the, um, the circle is closed. Unbelievable, man.
and I and I and what's really amazing about that when I speak about this whole thing about the universe and six degrees of separation, I it's there was something about that family that I felt so close to. I felt like they were my family. I mean, it was just the weirdest, comfortable, no nervous vibes, just completely like, man, I've known you forever. You know? Wow. And, I'm really. I'm really curious about the uh, the process of of composing uh, conversations. Uh, Nijinsky is uh, revered in the uh, in the in the ballet world, but there's actually not much in the way of uh, uh, film evidence of what he looked like when he was dancing. It's there's still photographs and there's his writings. So I'm curious what what was your relationship with him and how did his art inform that piece? Well, I was reading a bunch of books about Nijinsky and reading the diaries of Nijinsky. I don't know if you've ever read any of that stuff. The diaries are really hard to get through because a lot of it's just this nonsensical stuff. But his wife, Romola, like published all this stuff. I was really immersed in it while I was writing the piece, but I didn't make the connection. I was just writing another piece for the same mm -hmm. choreographer, right? And I was, and at the time I was studying with Richard Danielport, Michael Keurig introduced me to Richard Danielport and Richard hit it off. Me and him were like, oh my God, we, you know, let's start a band. <laughs> I was writing this piece under him and reading all this Nijinsky stuff, he completely immersed in it. And at one point I was like, oh my God, I, I was, I was, you're going to think this is completely out there, but I was at my keyboard working on something. And I saw this shadow next to me and it was like, oh my God, Nijinsky's standing next to me, you know? And, you know, that could be completely crazy fodder for just me thinking off on my artistic weirdness tangent. But, and at that moment I was like, oh my God, I'm writing, I'm having a conversation with Nijinsky because I'm reading these books and I'm really inside his head. And, uh, you know, that's how that all came to be. So I, I said, okay, I'm going to call this Conversations with Nijinsky. I, I think it went through a couple different incarnations. I actually mentioned it to Richard. He was like, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, you're really committing to that. And I was like, yeah, I am sure. You know. Hmm. So going back to a question about the um, comparative scale of your, for simplicity's sake, two careers, it's easy to imagine the milestones um, in the in the you know career of being a rock star, seeing yourself, uh, seeing your first music video on MTV, hearing your song on the radio for the first time, selling a million albums, um, and I can also imagine the hugeness of hearing eighty five people play a classical work that you've really only heard in your head before. Is that you know is is there any comparison? Is that a, a comparable thing? The, the, hearing an orchestra play a piece that you've slaved over and been tortured by for a year and a half is, is the greatest, uh, you know, there's so much satisfaction in, in hearing that if you get it right. I mean, it can also be panicking if you get the score wrong or something like that, but I've been, I've been lucky. I've had a lot of perform pretty, you know, for me, I've had a lot of performances. I usually get it right. And, and there's not, there, I mean, it, it completely blows away standing in front of 50,000 people going, all right, 
what? I mean, it's just <laughs> because it's, uh, you know, I love performing in rock, but I mean, I've done it and I've been there, done the, you know, I bought the T-shirt and, uh, you know, I've, and I love performing. It's awesome. And I don't think rock music, you know, is is even a viable art form if, if you don't have an audience. I mean, OK, classical music, too. But as a as the creator of one or the other. There's. And it's particular to me, by the way, you could be it could be, you know, maybe the guitarist in Rage Against the Machine. I mean, that's his highest calling. Uh, I don't know that. I'm just saying maybe for someone else playing, uh, you know, in a rock band is their highest calling. But for me, I feel strongly that the that everything I do in my life is a byproduct of the, of having my orchestra pieces played. Interesting. I, I suspected you would say that it's a, it's an interesting irony as a classical player myself. I can, you know, imagine what that might be like, you know, the, the hearing that and hearing the size of that, you know, but you can, you know, you can also imagine that, um, you know, standing in front of a Marshall stack turned to 11, um, you know, that I think most people would look at that as like, you know, the top of the world. Well, there's no replacing the feeling of, 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 playing heavy metal i mean you know you can't i still keep trying to achieve that in 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 my orchestral music because it's you know trying to make the orchestra rock like a rock band my i, yeah. I think i did it actually in in this first symphony that i wrote the first movement is is as close as i've come to like having a rock band on stage but it's but it's nothing like rock i mean it's it's the most complex piece of music i've ever written i was uh, mentioning to brian uh the uh, the other day that uh, and I um, I thought of this when you were mentioning that fork in the road when you hear a particular um, a particular melody or a particular rhythmic pattern you could go take this and put it in a classical piece or take it and put it in a rock tune and listening to some of the the lower strings in the first movement of conversations with uh, Nijinsky and listening to like that you know riff after the uh, after the solo in seventeen I'm like God you know like like kind of like low articulated cellos and yeah. like that, that uh, alternate picking, you know, rock guitar. Like there's so it's much a rock in riff. there. It, yeah, that's a rock with a bada do da do do da do da do da do da do do da do do da do 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 da do 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 da do do da 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 about complex pop music i mean listen to uh yes and now take 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 yes and imagine an orchestra playing it you know but the difference is is what you what you mentioned earlier is short form to long form that was the hardest jump michael curick got me through that getting me from short form to long form and understanding how to do it and not meandering and make it meaningful and be uh, very concise and, uh, you know, using powerful musical statements. You know, I'm busy being afraid of, I've written uh, 
the first 10 minutes of my violin concerto and I'm really like stalling to write the second half because the second half is really where I've got to kick into high gear all the virtuosic writing and, and uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a little worried to be honest with you. Well, I'm uh, guessing that you'll find your way. Yeah, one note at a time. <laughs> That's really that should be the that would be uh, you know the the name to my autobiography really. <laughs> it's the memoir. <laughs> yeah, one one note at a time. <laughs> well, this has been a, a really interesting conversation. The you know the craft brewed music thing is usually about music that's combining genres within itself. Um, and, and this is a little different for us in that your, uh, your stuff is, is kept more separate, but, but uh, you as an artist, uh, really a great fit for, for these conversations. And I really appreciate you making time. For oh, it. no, thank you guys. Yeah. I appreciate the time. I'm happy to, happy to help. And, and uh, thanks for promoting it. That was a real pleasure to talk, Kip. Thank you. No problem, man. Thank you for listening. Craft Brewed Music, both the podcast and the music discovery app, has the mission of promoting this music and these artists. We can't do that without ears on the music. So if you like what you've heard here, we're going to ask you two small favors. First, tell someone about the podcast. Second, go to the App Store or Google Play, download the Craft Brewed Music app, and try a free two-week trial of the curated streaming service. For more information, visit us at craftbrewedmusic.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.